in the morning. When you want the news, you need the front page every hour on the press box. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. And now, the news. The Cardinals beat the Saints on Thursday night football 42 to 34. I didn't know that much points were allowed on Thursday night football. Andy Dalton threw two pick sixes in the final two minutes of the first half. Arizona actually scored three touchdowns in the final three minutes. The win probability before Arizona's touch first touchdown in that three minutes. The Saints had a 61% chance to win. By the end of the half, it was Arizona at 96 percent that's how big a swing there was thanks to two pick sixes thrown by Andy Dalton uh DeAndre Hopkins made his return six game suspension for failing a PED test uh, but he had 10 catches for 103 yards the Cardinals are three and four they play in the NFC can they make the playoffs Adam I would judge by the fact that they're a half game out of first place right now that yeah they can the Arizona Cardinals have just as good of a chance as every other team in that division because somehow the Niners are three and three the Seahawks are three and three and the Rams are three and three and right now the best wild card team in terms of record is the New York Giants who yeah they're five and one it's awesome but they're not that good so yes of course they can yeah I don't believe at all in the Cardinals I don't think they look even remotely good uh but you can say that about pretty much everybody in the NFC, right? I mean, the Eagles are undefeated right now, but outside of the NFC East, nobody looks good, and nobody even really has a good record except for the Vikings. So three and four, I don't think they're good. I don't think they get there, but it's the NFL, and there's a lot of one-score games. If they get two of them to break their way, uh, they probably can make the playoffs. I guess they already have had one with the win against the Raiders here. That broke their way in overtime. But they, they can. I just don't believe in that team at all. Adam, do you remember those commercials for DirecTV where they went, I'm I'm Tony Romo, and I'm Arts and Crafts Tony Romo. It's yes. Andy Dalton, it's like, hi, I'm Andy Dalton, and I'm primetime Andy Dalton. I'm not sure exactly who primetime Andy Dalton is supposed to be in that, because that was terrifying. But yes, I totally <laughs> I was trying to do Patrick from SpongeBob. <laughs> Step back one leg in. What kind of shot is that? Have you ever shot that shot? Do you work on that shot? Brian Kelly doesn't like replay reviews. He said on his weekly radio show, 10 out of 10 times the call stands on the field unless it's an LSU call, right? Or is it just me? I just don't think they like the guy from up north. Um, Brian Kelly on the Brian Kelly radio show complaining about calls do you think he might have just been playing to the crowd and being like yeah the, the the refs the replay review they just hate me in lsu he's making 95 million dollars on this contract <laughs> he's making nine million dollars a year at one point brian kelly might have been the single most unlikable person in college football which is definitely like trying to uh like trying to win a contest that is unwinnable. So yeah, maybe he's playing to the crowd, but what is it that Brian Kelly can do to win over the crowd other than actually win football games? 
right? Brian Kelly is just a guy who gives off the energy of someone you don't want to be around. So if you think that you can win it by going against the refs, cool. But the guy from up north, that's how you want to play it? Tyler, you're, you're our token person from the south here. <laughs> Does that play? Uh no, generally people in the South don't like the people from up north, and they would be like, you're damn right the replay review better screw the guy from up north. That's the guy that needs to be screwed by it. So no, I don't think it does play very well for anybody in the SEC. Have you been lobbying or asking for some late hits there? I don't, I don't throw the flags. The Giants play the Jags on Sunday in Jacksonville. Giants are 5-1 and one on the season, but... A three-point underdog. Adam, I know you don't believe the Giants are this good, but should they be a three-point underdog in Jacksonville? No, and if you made me bet this game, I would take the points with the New York Giants. Look, fundamentally, they're not that good, and that's why the metrics don't like them, because if you just look at their traditional efficiency, they run the ball too much. Daniel Jones has been okay, and they don't have great receivers to help them make that passing offense look better. But that being said, what exactly has Jacksonville shown you to be a three-point favorite in this game? They blew the game in Indianapolis. They lost at home to the Houston Texans by seven two weeks ago. Yes, they outgained them significantly, but they still lost at home. So the Giants right now, great articles both by Ted Wynn from The Athletic, friend of the show, and by Benjamin Solak in The Ringer, talking about how Brian Dable and Mike Kafka, the offensive coordinator, are essentially embracing chaos. They are creating all sorts of odd personnel formations and leaning into the fact that this needs to be a running football team for the most part with Saquon Barkley to give their team advantages. And this is what I'm so excited about as a Giants fan. I'm just excited to see a coaching staff that gives the team a better chance to win instead of sitting around and complaining about how bad the roster is. Uh, a second, a third, a fourth, and a fifth for Saquon Barkley. Is he gone? I will drive to New Jersey, <laughs> to the Meadowlands. I will find a way to entice him into the car with probably like some extra special creatine powder to say your quads will get even bigger. <laughs> and I will drive him to wherever we have to take him for those. Uh, somebody that is down on his favorite team despite being five and one. The five and one start and the state of the NFC. They're going to the playoffs, right? Right now, Pro Football Focus gives them a 74% chance to make the playoffs. They, at the beginning of the year, faced the third easiest schedule in the NFL. They have not even played the Washington Wences once. So by the time the Giants get done with this schedule, they're probably going to have won 10 games. And yeah, they're probably going to the playoffs. Look at that. Look at the Giants. You're going to get a playoff game to cheer for, Adam. Be excited. I am. Look, I am. I'm happy. I'm excited. This is my happy face as a Giants fan. It just looks a lot like my other faces. Satisfied with the effort? Wait a minute. Has, like, what are we talking sorry, about? Jared. That's me. That's my bad, Jared. Are all Giants fans, you say you're, this is your happy face, have all Giants fans like adopted Eli Manning's confused facial expressions? <laughs> you know what? Eli Manning still beat Tom Brady twice in the Super Bowl. I, I, if I have to have Eli Manning face, I will have Eli Manning face. <laughs> Is that like how dogs start to look like their owners? Like yeah. fans start to look like their quarterback? How, how many of you, by the way, how many of you out there remember bitter beer face? If you remember oh bitter beer God, face, yeah. that's pretty much it. <laughs> you want to go? Or? Oh, you can go. I don't want to. Okay. The Commanders... 
Oh, God. I'm turning off my mic. Had a check bounce <laughs> that they sent to the winner of their 50-50 raffle. <laughs> so if you've been to a sporting event, uh, recently, I think almost every team does this. There is a 50-50 raffle. You buy some tickets, and then at the end of the day, they announce a winner. The team keeps half, and the winner gets half. Uh, a season ticket holder of the Commanders won this 50-50 raffle on September 11th. According to the story, he talked to CBS Sports, according to the story, he had to contact the team twice on Twitter to get some information about how the hell he was going to get paid. It was roughly $14,000 that he was owed. It took until October 13th for the check to arrive in the mail. He deposits it at his bank and then gets a fee, a $15 fee from his bank for trying to deposit a check that ended up bouncing. Now the commanders did end up wiring the money directly into this guy's account after they learned the check had bounced. Uh, They put out a statement saying it was a bank error and we are following up with the bank to learn why it happened and ensure it doesn't happen again. Even if it's as innocent as that, how the hell do the commanders have a $14,000 check bounce after not talking to this guy for two months after he won an in-stadium raffle? Somehow it's still not the worst thing they've done recently. (laughs) Like having the Sean Taylor retirement ceremony in the parking lot. Um, (laughs) I I just don't understand anything that happens with this franchise. I assume they didn't have the money because Dan Snyder was using it on private investigators to go after the other owners. (laughs) So maybe he just had taken a little bit off the top, skimmed a little cash and not told anybody so that he could try to find some dirt on Jim Ursay. What if uh, the people responsible for sending the check were just on the yacht with uh, Daniel Snyder in the middle of the ocean to avoid having to go to court? You know what? That's entirely possible. Uh, maybe maybe Dan Snyder had used it on lawyers to fight the federal government's uh, investigation. Maybe $14,000 is exactly how much it costs to shred the Wilkinson report. I don't know. Like There are many ways to explain this. You know, he kept squirting through there. and Jets wide receiver Elijah Moore has asked for a trade. Um, his targets in playing time, very, very low this season. He missed. He's actually back at the facility today. Uh, but yesterday, he missed practice. And initially, Robert Sala said that he had some family matters to attend to. The Jets then came back and said he was off for a personal day. And then it was reported that Elijah Moore had asked for a trade, and that's why he wasn't there, which I guess technically is a personal day. Um, the Jets uh, reportedly have no interest in trading him, and he did come back to the facility today. Uh, this feels like a player who has not been good enough to actually uh, force a trade, a, like any leverage to do this, and he's just going to be at the whims of what the Jets want to do with Elijah Moore. I don't know if that's the case, Tyler. Really? I, basically, football Twitter lit up yesterday with the idea that if Elijah Moore is available, somebody needs to send a draft pick to the Jets to, to get him. Uh, this was not the Denzel Mims situation. So I'm not saying he's proven that he deserves it. But right now, if you're a receiver on the New York Jets and you have to try to find footballs from Zach Wilson, I'd be asking for a <laughs> trade too. Zach Wilson sucks. And just because he sucks a little less than he did last year doesn't mean that he doesn't suck. His PFF grade last week in a game they won by three scores was 35. Zach Wilson is terrible. Request the trade. 
that's great. You're not getting it because if you're the Jets, you're not taking talent away from Zach Wilson, for God's sakes. You need to give him as much as possible. If the best thing you can say about your winning quarterback is his mom creates some excellent content, probably not in a great spot. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry, by the way, Jared. I didn't realize you had such competition in the dating pool with Zach Wilson. <laughs> we still have time in the segment. <laughs> you sense any give up in the locker room? Hell no. What kind of questions that, Phil? All right. Here's a fun story in the world of soccer. Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, Manchester United is making him train alone. They played Tottenham on Wednesday. He was not in the starting 11. They ended up beating Tottenham. Good win for Manchester United. But Ronaldo didn't get subbed into the game either. He left the bench before the game ended and reportedly left the stadium before his teammates even got off the field and into the locker room after winning the game. And now he is training alone. This is, it's fascinating because we talk about uh, mainly in the NBA and sometimes with like quarterbacks of NFL teams, like how a big personality and how a player might have more power than an actual team, right? Cristiano Ronaldo probably blows that out of the water. He is one of the most popular humans on the planet, let alone just athletes. And Manchester United is almost certainly better without him on the field, and he is now, this is the second time we've seen it already this year, basically throwing some sort of tantrum when he doesn't get to play, and it's phenomenal to watch, and I'm curious to see if Manchester United effectively releases Ronaldo, which is a crazy thing to say out loud. Jamie Tart, do 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 Jamie Tart, do 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 Jamie Tart. The front page is brought to you by Bonkers Comedy Club at the Suncoast. The Suncoast Hotel and Casino is the place to eat, drink, and laugh. Check out Bonkers Comedy every Saturday night. Takes the snap, throws to Taysom Hill. He's got some blockers in front, and Taysom Hill will take it in for the touchdown. Taysom reception TD. We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. All right, Adam, I, I have only heard Jared play that announcer's Taysom Hill call twice and both times you've been on the show. So I think Jared's doing it specifically for you. I think so. <laughs> and I think I like it. You do? Oh, because I think it every time gets me to think about Billy Madison <laughs> today, Junior. <laughs> so there's your Taysom Hill touchdown call. Um, he should probably just play quarterback, to be completely honest. Andy Dalton's throwing pick sixes. We don't need that anymore. Well, yeah, well, run the Wildcat. Well, we, yeah, we've, we've got arts and crafts Andy Dalton doing it. So, <laughs> All right. In college basketball, the conversation has begun again about expanding the NCAA tournament. And John Rothstein had an interesting report yesterday that the NCAA is considering expanding the postseason for all sports, not specific to just uh, the men's NCAA basketball tournament, but for all sports to have their postseason tournaments include 25% of the Division I teams at that sport. There's different numbers for every single sport. In college basketball, there are 363 college basketball teams this season in Division One. The 68-team format is 18.7% of teams. So if the NCAA says, hey, 
we want to get to 25% or around that mark because you got to make a tournament work. 25% of college basketball teams make the NCAA tournament. We would be looking at a 90-team tournament or around that number. Adam, do you want to see the NCAA tournament expand beyond 68? I mean, I don't think anybody necessarily wants to see it, right? Uh, Nobody wants to watch those games. But I understand exactly why they're doing it. It's more TV money because more games would be televised. And you end up with more opportunities for your really good teams to make it far down the line. So, yeah, I get it. So the TV money is... uh ultimately going to be the driving factor here, right? We see that every year in college sports, especially with conference realignments. I do actually like the logic of, hey, we need to get 25% of our teams into the postseason tournament because you can use UNLV basketball and UNLV football as a pretty good example of this. UNLV football going to a bowl game is going to be considered one of the best seasons in program history, but is going to be considered a success. If UNLV football goes to a bowl game in three of the next five seasons, it'll be one of the best five-year stretches in program history, and it will be considered a tremendous success. To do that, UNLV has to go six and six. They go six and six in three out of five years. You're not a good team. You're not a good program if all you're doing is going six and six in three out of five seasons. We would consider that success. Why? Because there's there's a little prize at the end. There's a bowl game at the end. If bowl eligibility was eight and four, then UNLV going six and six, we wouldn't care if UNLV went six and six. But because that's where bowl eligibility is, that's where we sort of give out the reward. Meanwhile, UNLV basketball, listen, this program hasn't been very good. They haven't been to the NCAA tournament in eight years. But UNLV basketball has been the equivalent of a six and six Mountain West football team or better for the majority of those eight years. There have been some years where they haven't been, but for the majority of those eight years, they've been the equivalent of an eight and eight, or excuse me, a six and six Mountain West college football team. So when we talk about success and when we sort of grade head coaches, college, it's, it's really difficult for college basketball teams because again, 18.7% of teams go to the NCAA tournament. You've got to be in the top 19% of all teams to go to the NCAA tournament. So when we talk about grading coaches, grading teams, grading success, I kind of like the logic of, hey, let's get a quarter of our teams into the NCAA tournament. And specifically for UNLV, this is the exact team that it would work wonders for, right? Kevin Kruger was asked about it at Media Day earlier this week, and he was like, oh, yeah, we're, we're all for it. I can't imagine why we wouldn't want that. Because if they had, you know, 90 teams in, UNLV probably has like maybe like two NCAA tournament appearances in the last eight years instead of zero. Like this, that is a very attainable goal for a UNLV program where, hey, be in the top 100 and you are good shot that you're in the NCAA tournament. That's very attainable for UNLV. The only fear, I think, is how much would they push out the fourth and fifth place Mountain West uh, teams for the 13th and 14th SEC and Big Ten teams. That might still happen. I don't hate the logic, even though I know deep down the logic is really TV money. I don't hate the idea of saying, hey, we want 25% of our teams in the NCAA tournament. Let's see, UNLV is the wrong team to look at, both in football and basketball, to make the case for this. Because when you talk about, is a 6-6 six and six record good, 
you have to compare it to UNLV. You can't compare it to what it means for other programs to say, is six and six good? Well, look, UNLV has been one of the worst football programs in the country for the better part of 50 years. So when you talk about can they go six and six year after year, that would be outstanding. That wouldn't just be good. That would be outstanding for UNLV football. And so that, to me, that's a higher level than talking about do you expand to 25% of college basketball teams because when it comes to the bowl game, the bowl game doesn't really mean anything for UNLV. If they were just 6-6 six and six and bowls didn't mean anything, that would still be enormous. And we know that roughly half of Division I uh, football teams in the FBS level get to a bowl game. Now, on the basketball side, I agree with you that it would give UNLV a better chance to get in, but you and I both know... <laughs> That this it. is absolutely it. going to be a way <laughs> to get Mississippi State going, let's say, 14 and 17, but making a run to the semis of the SEC tournament in. And when you look at UNLV, you say, okay, they would have had a couple of bursts. Would they have? When's the last time UNLV won the Mountain West tournament in any significant mm -hmm. way? They can't do that. That's not allowed. They, they're not, they don't finish well. So we keep saying year after year, well, then maybe they'll make a run in the Mountain West Tournament. No, maybe they'll win a game in the Mountain West Tournament. And they're not going to be the kind of team that gets hot and proves the point that 25% is a good thing. So I see the points that you're making about, you know, how the bar would be different, but I don't know that UNLV is the right team to, to show that bar. So uh, Kevin Kruger definitely wants it because it makes his job a lot easier. That's that's really his only takeaway there is the more teams in the NCAA tournament, the easier it is for him to say, hey, look at what I accomplished. All right, coming up next, Seth Walder from ESPN joins the show. If it were, do you think that I would share it with you in this environment? Probably not. Our business is our business. and um, Everyone wants to win. If it transpired. It's good. It probably means there's a couple of guys that wanted to win. If it didn't transpire, it probably means that it should have because uh, we, we are aggressively pursuing victory, um, and sometimes that's emotional. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is The Press Box with Graney and Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. Joining us now from ESPN is Seth Walder. Good morning, Seth. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing great. How are you? We're good. So if we look at the trade the 49ers and Panthers made yesterday, I'm curious your thoughts on when a team already has uh, Debo Samuel, a guy that they like to hand the ball off to, a guy they like to throw to, and then they trade for Christian McCaffrey. Is there a way that adding McCaffrey is, you know, additive and he just everything he brings is added on to Debo Samuel, or are they simply going to eat into each other's touches and ultimately eat into each other's value? I think that there's a way that it's additive and that this helps in a light way for the 49ers going forward. But, I mean, I think this, this trade was a huge mistake for San Francisco. They paid a lot in terms of draft capital for a six-year running back in you know a time where we know that running backs, even elite ones, are just not that valuable. I think it's kind of ironic because the 49ers are – Great proof of that. They are constantly shopping for new running backs, and yet they always find an Elijah Mitchell, Raheem Mostert, uh, Jeff Wilson Jr., who ends up being super efficient on the ground for them. I know McCaffrey brings an, an aerial aspect to the 49ers with him, but to me, this was a lot to pay uh, for what they're getting. 
especially considering the injury risk too. Let me let me note that. Yeah, I mean, for a guy who didn't play a full season in 2020 or 2021, um, Seth, as we talk through this trade, it reminds me a lot of the conversation that we had here in Vegas around the Devontae Adams trade, where Tyler and I were both saying, listen, it's great they got Devontae Adams, but the cost was extremely high, both in terms of draft picks and in terms of the contract that you had to hand out. Do you think fans just have a difficult time getting their head around all of that because they just see Christian McCaffrey, guy they've had on their fantasy team who's been great for them? Maybe, yeah, maybe a little bit. It's like, you know, or it's just like the short term, you know, just like you're, it's like you buy something on a credit card. You don't have to pay for it right now when you, when you pay in draft picks. Like, you know, the, that, that's the thing is like, it, it seems, it seems great, but, but then down the road, uh, it's like the Raiders aren't really paying for Devontae Adams right now in terms of the draft pick, but a couple of years from now, sure. And for the 49ers, like they're only beginning to feel the ramifications of their Trey Lance deal now, and, and, and obviously they'll feel the ramifications of the McCaffrey deal uh, in years to come. So I think it's just like that shiny object in, in front of you that, that they have. I will say that the one thing for in this case is that, like, Salary, the price that they're paying in terms of salary cap dollars is really not that high. It's basically free to them this year. Non-guaranteed $12 million next year, which I assume they'll pick up. There's no more guaranteed money. Uh, so it could be worse. Like I think it's, it's, it is a slightly different situation than when you trade for a player and then have to hand them the huge contract. So on the idea that they're, they'll pay later for what they did and what they're going to get right now, they are three and three, but how likely is a 49ers run to the Super Bowl this season now? I think that's like the saving great like that's the that's the case for this trade, which is that you look around the landscape of the NFL and you or the NFC and you say, Well, okay, I think we can feel pretty good like the Eagles are good. Uh, and then are we sure anyone else is good? I mean and I and I think that San Francisco is maybe uh, along with Dallas like as a bet is that I think certainly Green Bay and Tampa Bay are looming, but you're, you're San Francisco and you're looking at your talented roster. You know that in order to win with Jimmy Garoppolo, you're going to have to put a really great group around him, but they do have a really great group. And so they're probably looking at it and saying, hey, we've got a little bit of a window here. Let's try and maximize it. I'm sure that's the impulse. And so I, I do get that. And yeah, I don't, I don't, I think it's possible that San Francisco could. Uh, couldn't make a run here. I mean, look who they're, they're going up against. And speaking of look who they're going up against, uh, I mean, is this the Rams effect, Seth? Uh, is this one team looking at what the Los Angeles uh, squad did last year? And, you know, I, I don't want to make a big joke of F them picks, but it, it, in the same vein, it really is the San Francisco 49ers taking a similar approach. No, I think, I think, it, is a, I think it is that effect. And I think it's dangerous when you're – you're trying to copy a formula of, you know, one Super Bowl team. I mean, there's many, many ways that the Rams just played out in the divisional round or something last year, and we're not talking about this idea of issuing draft picks in the, in the same light. Or, uh, like, you know, next year, are we looking back at the Rams paying up for a guy like Allen Robinson and it doesn't, it doesn't work out? It happened to all work out for them last year. And the other thing is, like, the Rams, when they made, like, what it was effectively this trade last year, when they traded for Von Miller, I mean, to me, Von Miller plays a much more crucial role, premium position, 
Uh, he's an edge rusher, was filling, uh, was filling a need where I, I'm not sure I would say this was a need for San Francisco. And so to me, that, that Miller trade was a much better deal. But yeah, I think it's a reaction to that. I mean, you just, we're just looking at the 49ers team. They've traded a first, second, third, and fourth round pick in this upcoming draft. <laughs> I think that makes sense. Seth Walder with us from ESPN. So you tweeted out not too long ago that the Raiders defense is uh, the best in the league uh, uh, by EPA against design runs, but worst in the league by EPA against dropbacks. What do you make of that, that they can be so good against the run, but so bad against the pass? It's, it's not the direct, if you're going to have that kind of split, it's not the direction (laughs) you want it to be in. You know, like I'd be like, I'll take worst in the league in, uh, stopping the run if you can be best against against the pass. Uh, I think it's interesting. I don't know. You know, like I I, I knew there was something there, but I, I didn't didn't I didn't realize that the split was that large. Uh, I I think that is interesting. I think it's not a great sign because the most important thing is to is to just stop the pass. And uh, yeah, I think you have to if you if you see that at least you're working from one place of strength, but I do think that you have to kind of recalibrate your defense to try and figure out, like, okay, how can we prioritize the de- how can we prioritize the pass? Is it stacking the box less often on, on early downs? Um, something like that, because clearly they need help in pass defense. And Seth, those numbers are by EPA expected points added, and obviously we've spent a lot of time in the last few years in, I think, Education mode, both for ourselves and for the general public as to more advanced metrics when it comes to measuring success in football. You do a lot of work around this. What do you think is either the biggest misconception or the biggest challenge when it comes to, you know, taking the information that's available out there and making it digestible for the average football fan? Ooh, great question. The biggest challenge. Well, in some ways, Complicated, but it doesn't. It doesn't need. You don't need to understand all of the all of the math in order to understand the, the kind of breakdowns. And I do think one of the things that's nice about player tracking data is it often comes in the form of like football language. So like you know we can say like oh uh, you know the Raiders ran a ton of cover three last year. I mean you know that, but like uh, and that that's coming from some serious advanced math. Uh, but it comes in the language of football. But I think where the challenge is like. When we talk about fourth downs, for example, it's just oversimplified generally. I think we, we oversimplify. Uh, we think about the thing in front of us. Um, so what I mean by that is we're thinking, well, if I fail on this fourth down, I lose. Uh, and sort of reframing the question of trying to extend how long you're not losing versus winning the game, which is, which is two different things. Um, I think what happens is there's like a major selection bias when we talk about fourth downs. When teams go for it on fourth down and they convert, we tend not to talk about it. But when they fail, it becomes a huge thing. And so people have this distorted view. It seems like all the time people go for it on fourth down, they lose the game. And that's just not true. It's just that when you go for it on fourth down and you convert, and later you score a touchdown on that play, well, what was the biggest play? Well, like the 25-yard touchdown that came later, so that gets the highlights. I think those are some of the things that, that pop into mind, but there's, there's a lot of stuff. It is a challenge. Of course it is. Has Brandon Staley been beaten down and broken? <laughs> I don't know what happened. 
I, I, I am, I'm pretty flummoxed because we had a situation where he was, um, I don't want to say he was aggressive. I mean, he even had situations where last season where he went for it and our model uh, preferred a kick or a punt, um, which, is, which is highly unusual. Now, he mostly made good decisions last year. Um, but I think that he ha- he's spoken off season to defending a lot of his decisions, and I thought he said a lot of the right things about uh, evaluating process and giving your team the best chance to win and all that. And then it cha- something changed because he started uh, going for a you know kicking, kicking, punting in situations where I think it's really a no-brainer, and I would think that he would think it's a no-brainer based on what he did last year. So I'm confused. Like, was last year, was it, did he not believe the things he was saying? Was he, did he didn't have conviction about it? I don't know, but something changed. Something absolutely did. We talked earlier uh, about one-score games, which the Chargers have been in a lot of, and the Raiders have lost four of them this year. And Tyler asked me a question that I think is probably better to ask you. Do one-score games tend to even out within a year, or is this the sort of thing that kind of varies more season to season? You know, I don't think that it's uh, – let me put it this way. Let me put it, okay, let me put it this way. The fact that the Raiders have been in a lot of one-score games and come out on the wrong side of them, uh, like, to me, that makes me more bullish on the Raiders relative to their record. So, like, to me, I think when you lose 24-22 or you lose 30-29, to it just indicates that – could have gone either way. You're playing at the Chiefs. You lose by one point. We know the Chiefs are good. That's a really that's a really strong sign. So does it even out? I don't know if it's going to even out necessarily. I think it's more of a long term thing. But I guess I would say like I think some people look at oh losses in a one score game as like a, a bad thing or something like that. Uh, and I think it's more just like let's just evaluate the score relative to the opponent, and then, and then how good a team is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it absolutely does make sense, and I understand why you would be bullish on it. I think I was trying to get you know down to the idea of should Raiders fans expect that because there have been these close games that they might have some of them go their favor this year when we look at last year when they went 7-2 and two in one-score games, and then you see it come this year and go sort of the other way and say, well, are things necessarily just evening out, or is ah, that just what the NFL uh, is? Is the NFL just n- this league where you could fall on either side of this on any given week? Okay, uh, yes. I think yes to your last point, but no, I don't think that's just because they've lost these games that we should expect them, that we should expect it to even out. Like, they're not due. You know what I mean? Like, it's like if you, if, uh, if red hits five times in roulette, on the sixth roll, black is no more likely than it ever is to, to hit the next time. And so I think, um, I don't know, I don't know if it's pure 50-50, pure like luck or something like that, whether you are uh, on one side or the other of one-score games. But I don't feel like the Raiders are due. I just think that they're saying that they're 1-4 and four and thinking of them as a 1-4 and four team is selling them short. Well, he is Seth Walder from ESPN. Seth, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. So there is Seth Walder on the NFL from ESPN. Good follow on Twitter, by the way. Coming up next, we'll get into some NBA because the Lakers lost again last night. 
Holiday back to Giannis. Giannis sends a dart over to the corner. Allen back to Giannis with a two-hand slam as he goes tumbling down. Oh, the Bucks! A picture of perfection with a ball movement. Here's Grayson Allen. Kicks it out. Matthews with a chance for the lead. Three ball. Yes, sir. Wesley Matthews with a dagger from the left wing. And the Bucks go back ahead by one. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. Featuring Adam Candy. Last night. The Lakers fell 0 2 on the season. They lost the Clippers 103 to 97. Patrick Beverly was 1 for 7 from the floor. Russell Westbrook was 0 for 11. And maybe worst of all, he shot six three pointers in that game. Still, Lakers only lost by six points, despite those two uh, being a massive negative on the offensive end. So I got to do this a couple of times last year. I'm glad I get to do it again, uh, where I just get to ask Adam Candy, how bad are the Lakers? (laughs) (laughs) They can't shoot. (laughs) They can't shoot at all. And look, this is not dependent on Russ. Uh, Paul George said it after the game last night that he feels bad for Russell Westbrook because this is the wrong team for Russell Westbrook to be on. And so when he goes 0 for 11, yeah, some of it's obviously on him. He missed 11 shots, but he's just not being put in a position to succeed. It doesn't work for anybody. And the Lakers' success this year will come down to one thing. Is Anthony Davis healthy? Can Anthony Davis give you 70 games this year? If Anthony Davis can give you something like that, that the Lakers will be competitive. They'll make the playoffs. They'll, they'll be in the mix. But... They're so far behind the elite teams in the West that I just don't see how it gets any better than that. So that idea of how far away they are from the best teams in the West, given that this is the wrong team for Russell Westbrook, given that they have uh, bad shooting, would you trade Westbrook and two first round picks to get shooting? The rumored trade in the offseason was for Miles Turner and Buddy Heald, but the uh, Lakers refused to give up two first round picks in that deal. Would you make that trade? Or if you're the Lakers, would you say, even if we do that, we're not winning the NBA title, so we're holding on to our, I think it's 2027 and 2029 first round. I was just going to ask you, how far (laughs) to the future are we talking? Because New Orleans has every one of their first round picks from the Anthony Davis trade. Uh, No, come on. Look, the Lakers are not a team that with one more shooter is going to be ready to win. They need three shooters to be ready to win. They're not close right now. They're just not. And right now, the best thing that they can do is hope that they can have two stars healthy come the playoffs and that they catch the kind of variance that the Celtics caught last year with teams that have injured star players going against them. That's, that's hold pat. Don't get any deeper into the hole than you already are. On the other side of this, the Clippers uh, win. Kawhi Leonard, who's coming back from uh, torn ACL, he came off the bench in this game, played 21 minutes, scored 14 points. Um, is this? Do am I putting too much on the Clippers to say that they not only have the high end star power, obviously if healthy, the high end star power of Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, but also like are they deeper than everybody else? Like last night. They used uh, Ivan Zubac, John Wall, Luke Kennard, Reggie Jackson, Marcus Morris, Norman Powell, Robert Covington, Nicholas Batum, all of those guys, in addition to Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, got 10 minutes. Like, It feels like this team has potentially the top-end star power and 
incredible depth that they're going to win the West. They could win the West. I don't know that they're necessarily going to win the West. And I think you look at how deep the roster goes and you say they've got the guys in the right positions, right? Like you look at players like Nick Batum and you look at even the shell of what's left of Robert Covington at this point and who knows what John Wall has to give. Maybe John Wall has something that looks like last night that is able to offer. You look and you say if all of it breaks right, yeah, they go 10 deep in a way that not a lot of teams do. How many teams have a guy like Reggie Jackson where when you're two stars in Leonard and George, if they don't go off, a guy like Reggie Jackson who can get you 30 on just about any given night. So, yeah, it absolutely could break the way of the Clippers if their stars are healthy. But, man, that has been such an enormous <laughs> if that it's hard to say that, yes, the Clippers are right. the favorites to win. Right. That's, you know, Kawhi Leonard is back, but he's still coming off the bench because they're managing his minutes. So it's it's definitely a massive question about what happens next for the Clippers. It just I, I think the one thing when we talk about playoff series is we tend to see it every year where somebody who played 18 minutes a game isn't in doesn't get minutes in a certain playoff series because of a matchup and on the flip side a guy who wasn't getting many minutes is all of a sudden thrust into a bigger role because they've got to defend a certain player it feels like the clippers maybe better than anybody have enough guys at enough different positions that they should be able to match up against most styles in the nba that if they need to bench a guy or need to play somebody more minutes that they've got enough players and enough different players that it's going to work out well for them. And if they have to go against another team's star who they're having trouble against, they can just throw Marcus Morris out there to <laughs> body slam him, and then the series will turn in their favor. That's the benefit of having Marcus Morris on your team. Yeah, and then they got plenty of replacements for him. It's not like they need Marcus Morris to play 30 minutes.